Yeah, Palm Sunday is the beginning of Passion Week, as it's often called. Uh, I don't think in the Bible it ever mentions that, but it is Passion Week. And the reason why is Christ's passion is at the end of this week, his death, and then, of course, his resurrection. But that all starts with Palm Sunday. We wouldn't have had uh, probably his death and resurrection if we didn't have Palm Sunday first. And when I was growing up, we often had palm branches that we'd bring and wave while we're doing praise. Uh, I actually thought about buying these little palm crosses, like kind of knitted things. They weren't going to come in time, so I didn't buy them, so I'm sorry. Should have looked into those last week instead of this week. <clears throat> but I, growing up, I always remembered, you know, waving them around and then also poking my siblings because that's what I did when I was little. Anyone else do that? Raise your hand. Anybody else? Wave palm branches around, poke their siblings? Yeah, it's great. I, I love that. It's great. I grew up in a very, very liturgical church, so we had a lot of things like that. Um, yeah. So today I want to share on the passage that you've probably heard many, many times. It's called the triumphal entry. Uh, another, sometimes it's called uh, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, and these are all just subheadings in the Bible. Um, in our readings of this passage, we often gloss over it without digging in too much. Um, you know, there's something about a donkey, palm branches, and maybe some hosannas. Uh, but if we look into it a bit more, it is really one of the most important part of Jesus' ministry in public. Um, and potentially even the most important part of his public ministry before his death. And there's a lot we can learn from it, even if we've heard it dozens of times. For some of us, more than dozens. Just kidding. <laughs> so, before I pray really quick, I just want to set the stage. Set the stage for what's happening. So, Passover is a Jewish festival celebrating uh, in Exodus the Passover of the Spirit of God in, uh, in Egypt, right? And it was uh, ordained by God to celebrate that time, but also to look forward to this Passion Week. <clears throat> and what was Passover like in Jerusalem? The population of Jerusalem was normally about fifty to 100,000, about the size of Ann Arbor, right? However, during Passover festival, the population would swell to about a million in some sources, including uh, Josephus, who's a uh, Jewish um, historian, say it could have been up to 2.7 million. So imagine Ann Arbor, suddenly there's a million people to three, million to three million people in Ann Arbor, right? Imagine how Ann Arbor changes on a football Saturday when like another 50,000 people to 100,000 people come to town, or like Hash Bash a few Saturdays ago where like another 20,000 people were in town. It felt really crowded, right? Imagine if there were three million people staying in town for a week. <laughs> It'd be nuts. Most of the people would camp around Jerusalem because there wasn't any room to stay anymore in the city. So they'd be in these like temporary tents. <clears throat> Not all, but most of the Jewish population, I'd probably say 90 to 95%, maybe not quite that much, but most of them were traveling or in the city at this moment. And what was Jesus doing right before this? Uh, we, we have a story of the healing of two blind men, uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and the resurrection of Lazarus. 
These are all stories that if, if you don't know them, please, please read in the Bible. Uh, they're, they're amazing stories, especially the resurrection of Lazarus. And what did the public think about all this? They were super, super excited. They had heard about Lazarus coming back from the dead, and they're like, yo, what is going on here? Um, and they're, you know, they're probably had questions in their head. Would Jesus come to the Passover, or would the Pharisees keep him away? Because um, the Pharisees hadn't quite been quiet about their disdain for Jesus. So that's, the, that's kind of the precursor to what's going on here. So let me pray really quick, and then we'll get into our passage. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for this time to just think about you. Think about your Passion Week, God. Think about what you did 2,000 years ago. And what, through the story we're going to read today from Luke, what you did and proclaimed that day. And Lord, I just pray that you, uh, you know, you've helped me prepare this sermon. But more than that, God, I pray that you help me to just speak clearly Speak from your heart, God, not my heart. And I pray that everybody else will just understand as well. And we pray all that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, turn your Bibles to Luke 19, 28 through 48. I don't got no slides today, so you're going to have to open up your Bibles or your phones. <clears throat> if you're looking at your phone, I'll just assume you're looking at the Bible. So don't be ashamed. <clears throat> so yes, Luke 19. 28 through 48. And now I'm going to, I've chopped this up a little bit, so we're going to read all of that, but I'm not going to read it all at once, so you're going to have to keep your Bibles open for a little bit. All right, so starting with verse 28. So after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached, approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, probably Peter and John, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying this colt? It's mine, you know, like... Why you take it off my colt? And they replied, the Lord has needs of it. Or just the Lord needs it, I guess. There's no has there. All right, let's pause there for a second. <clears throat> Anybody know what a colt is? Not quite. Uh, a colt is a donkey, but it also, also could be a horse. Now, in this particular passage, it is a donkey. It's a donkey colt. Colt just means a young, young donkey or horse. So probably uh, a yearling. Uh, not super young. It's not a baby because you can't ride a baby. But it's young and untrained and un- basically unbroken is what the word it is. Um, nobody had ever ridden it, um, partly because it was too young to be ridden for a while. <clears throat> right? Why the heck would Jesus ride on a donkey? You know, oftentimes we think of this at first, oh, you know, a donkey's kind of humble and lowly. You know, it's just Jesus expressing his humility. Uh, and while it does talk about, you know, that, I think there's more to it than that. First of all, the Messiah was prophesied to ride on a donkey. You know, everything's got to be a fulfillment of a prophecy somewhere, right? So you don't have to turn here, but Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10 say, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the bat- battle bow will be broken. And maybe battle bow will be broken. Uh, <clears throat> he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> so, of course, why, why is this important? Obviously, again, it was prophesied. But more than that, a donkey represents the type of rule Christ had come to, to enact. Uh, this, uh, in Zechariah, it says, His rule will extend from sea to sea and river to the ends of the earth. Jesus was enacting a rule of peace, not of war. If he came for war, he'd probably been in full armor on a war horse with a sword. But he didn't. He came in simple robes, uh, in humility, and riding on a donkey. <clears throat> An unbroken colt is what this is described as, or a foal, right? Like I said, a young, a young uh, donkey, basically never been ridden before. Why is this important? You know, why, why did it have to be an unbroken colt? Wouldn't any donkey do? Um, potentially, it could have, could have been fine. However, Jesus riding on an unbroken donkey, that donkey probably would have tried to get him off his back real quick. But it didn't happen. Because Jesus isn't just a man. He's also the Lord of the universe, right? And he has authority over creation. There's also a very pure donkey. You know, donkeys are as pure as they can be, I guess. <clears throat> but yeah, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over creation. And in addition to that, <clears throat> every Jew in Jerusalem would have known what this meant. Jesus' purpose in riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was to make a public claim to be their Messiah and the King of Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Open declaration that he is the righteous Davidic Messiah. At this point, Jesus had never actually really done that. He had never publicly in view of the crowds said, I am the Messiah. Now, he had told that to people, his disciples, especially his close disciples. He said, you know, who, who am I? And they said, you're the Christ, the Messiah. He said, yes, yes, I am. Uh, he had made it clear, clear to them. <clears throat> Many of the crowds, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, didn't, didn't realize that. Even after this, while this is happening, many of the crowds didn't even realize what was going on. But they knew the prophecy about a coming Messiah, and they knew when he was riding on a donkey, they're like, oh boy, here it comes. We're going to be, Rome's going down, y'all. <clears throat> um, and uh, this was pretty common, actually, for, for coronation and stuff like that, uh, that Jewish kings would ride on a donkey. Uh, king David, when uh, uh, Solomon was, I think, crowned king or declared to be the next king, he rode David's mule. Uh, so it's, it's not, it wasn't something weird. We kind of think it as weird because people don't really ride a donkey anymore. But it wasn't weird then. Let's just put it that way. So let's keep moving on here. So, verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, so the donkey, They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let's pause there for a minute. So Nino talked a little bit about this earlier in his kind of exhortation about praise uh, and uh, it's kind of funny. We kind of both ended up on the same passage, not 
we didn't talk about that ahead of time. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, just great kind of description of the disciples were praising with loud, loud voices. They were not quiet. There was a commotion. And of course, as I explained earlier, in Jerusalem during this time, there were a ton of people around. A ton doesn't really describe how many people. <clears throat> you pretty much couldn't escape the crowds. And Jesus, during this week, would go out to Bethany to rest, partly because it was safer, but also because there wasn't any other place to stay. And when this whole thing was going on, you got two parts of this crowd. You got the crowd of disciples who have been following Jesus for a while, right? <clears throat> and they're kind of coming along with him. But you already got the crowds that are already in Jerusalem, and that's, that's a big crowd. And they're A, witnessing, it, joining in, stuff like that. Um, but you got this crowd of people coming in and then a crowd of people coming around to see what this commotion is and also join in, right? And let me just tell you, this was a bona fide parade. <clears throat> there was only one float, and that float was Jesus, but it was a, it was a parade. Because <laughs> there's a whole bunch of people probably behind him and in front of him singing and praising, right? And of course, why are, why are they so excited? We talked about this earlier, you know, the prophecy. Uh, you know, and they were... They were prepared for the Messiah. They had had a really, really hard 500 plus years, had gone into exile, come back to Jerusalem, and then basically not having a prophet for 400 years uh, until uh, John the Baptist, right? And so they're like, we're ready. We're ready for the Messiah. We're, we've been ransacked by Greece. We've been ransacked, well, not quite ransacked, but taken over by Greece, taken over by Rome. We want to have our own country back, and we want to put these Europeans back in their place. <clears throat> so they were they had the, the word I like to use is just fervor because it kind of gets the idea of this almost like mad excitement <clears throat> and of course they recognized the fulfillment of this prophecy with them riding on a donkey and of course what were they doing they're laying down their cloaks making a way for Jesus making a way for the king they're laying down their palm branches and waving them around. Palm branches mean victory and triumph. And they're yielding. They're yielding to the way of God, ushering him in, in their action. And of course, uh, many of them were also ushering him in in their hearts. Some of them probably were not ushering him in their hearts because they're just like, yo, this is exciting. I don't know what's going on, but I'm joining in. <clears throat> and they're, of course, with their voices, they're saying these things, peace in heaven and glory in the highest Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which means save us, God. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest of heaven and Hosanna to the son of David. These are all just different phrases taken from the different gospels. The crowd was not surprised. They shouted because they had a reason to shout. Their long-expected king, their Messiah, had come. Waited for hundreds of years. Let's move on. Verse 39. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. <clears throat> and then he gives them a nice rebuke. I tell you, talking to the Pharisees, rebuking, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, If you, Jerusalem, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. 
They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So, of course, what did the Pharisees think, think of this? They had already come butt heads with Jesus for a while because uh, you, they, they had already been wanting to accuse him of blasphemy. And now here he is claiming to be the king, Messiah. And they're like, yo, you're just a dude from Nazareth. You're not, you couldn't be the Messiah. That's blasphemy. So they're like, you know, stop, Jesus, have your crowd stop praising you because that, that's not good, you know. That's, that's blasphemy. And, of course, Jesus, like I said, he rebukes them. He says, no. If these people stop, the very stones will cry out. And what, what does that mean? Uh, it's kind of a <clears throat> weird phrase. But this is the way I'd like to describe it. You know, the disciples were right to praise him. And if they did not, who else would? Jesus recognized this as one of the most important parts of the history of the world. He wouldn't let the Pharisees stop that. And creation, of course, is, is groaning. And, and creation itself worships God, right? And so whether the stones would literally cry out in audible voices or not, who knows? Probably God could make that happen. <clears throat> but I think what, what Jesus is trying to say is, even if these people stay, stayed quiet, that would be, you, you literally wouldn't even, they wouldn't even be recognizing what's going on right now. <clears throat> and so he didn't want to stop that. He couldn't stop that. He, he's like, no, who I am can't stop that. So John mentions they wanted to kill him already, and of course this just made them even more angry. And they wanted to kill Lazarus too because Lazarus had raised from the dead. And they say things like this, the whole world has finally gone over to him. <clears throat> so they, they, they're really mad. And then in Matthew, in the same story, it describes that the, the, a lot of the crowds were asking a question. Who is this? Now, of course, the disciples, for the most part, knew who it was that was they at least knew he was a prophet, but most of them were like, he's, he's the king, he's the Messiah. But those who, who hadn't been following Christ closely were, were asking this question, who is this? Who is this man claiming to be the Messiah? <clears throat> and of course, people sometimes, some people said even, hey, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And he just kind of gives you an idea that they hadn't fully grasped onto who, who he was. And of course, if Jesus was just a man and not God reincarnate, it would be sheer insanity for him to make such a claim. But of course, Jesus wasn't just a normal man. He lived as a man. He experienced life as a man. He was a man, but he was more than a man. He was God incarnate, God living as a man. Fully God, fully man. <clears throat> so he can make that claim, right? And then we get to this moment where Jesus kind of pauses. And I just want to paint a picture really quick. There's a, there's a hubbub going around, right? That's a good old word, hubbub. <clears throat> and Jesus pauses at the top of a hill looking over Jerusalem. And it's like the whole crowd kind of melt away for a second. And he realizes this. He, he's, he weeps because he knows at the end of that week, the same crowds that are busy, being excited are going to be the opposite of excited. <clears throat> They're going to call for his execution. He sees through the cheers 
and they, he sees them turning their back on him. And of course, he, he talks about this. <clears throat> he says this day, basically. You know, this day, if only you knew what, what was going on. Uh, Daniel 9 talks about uh, a prophecy of this moment. Uh, and it's really interesting. He actually mentions a very <clears throat> big mathematic little thing. He says seven times seven times 62. I don't remember the exact phrasing. Um, <clears throat> basically, Daniel prophesied a certain amount of time between uh, the <clears throat> when King Artaxerxes of, of what is that Persia sends Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. Daniel prophesied basically an exact timing, and it's not just exact timing to the year; it's exact timing to the day, to when this is happening. It's like one hundred and seventy-five thousand days. <clears throat> if you want to know more about it, talk to me. There's some real cool math involved. <clears throat> but he's weeping. He's weeping because of two things. One, he knows their rejection. And two, he knows what's coming in 70 AD. And for those of you who haven't studied history, in 70 AD, Rome ransacked Jerusalem. Completely destroyed. When you read about it in uh, early church history, uh, Eusebius uh, and other historians have, have talked about it. It is horrifying. Uh, and Jerusalem has never, never been the same. Of course, it's been rebuilt, but the temple's gone. There's a, a mosque on top of it. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's terrible. It's really terrible. And he's weeping because he knows that's coming in about 40 years for these people. <clears throat> and if only they had known what was going on today. So let's move on. Last little bit. 45 to 48. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. <clears throat> so this just kind of describes what he's going on about through his, the week here. But, uh, and, you know, that evening and several of the, yeah, that evening as Jesus was li- leaving the city to go about, back out to Bethany and spend the night there, <clears throat> he, he went back out to Bethany. And, and according to Jewish tradition, uh, that day that he rode in was the same day that the Passover lamb for each family was being selected. So the Passover lamb was uh, on the, the Friday night that of Passover, they would be uh, um, sacrificing their, their lambs and cooking them and eating them in remembrance of the Passover. But this, almost a week earlier, was the day that they were selecting. So as Jesus is walking back to Bethany, all the crowds around him are looking and selecting their Passover lamb, not realizing that the Lamb of God is walking among them. Those who read uh, Dwight Pentecost's book for my son, you, you read about that, you may not remember it, but that was in there. That's where I got it from. So, that's our passage today. Something I wanted to talk about today was this concept of what's called the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. And uh, before we get into what that means for us, and means theologically, I'm going to go into a little bit. I can't go into it super heavy because I don't got a lot of time left, and you don't want to be here all day listening to me lecture. 
<clears throat> However, what did the Jews expect? Now, there are many writings about the coming king, the Messiah, that pretty much all Jews knew. <clears throat> Isaiah 9 and 11, so chapter 9, chapter 11, talk about, uh, we talk about this sometimes during uh, Christmas time, but it says the government shall be on his shoulders, talking about the, the, the Savior, the Messiah. He'll establish a new Davidic kingdom and uphold it, the suit from the stump of Jesse that will rule with righteousness and faith, faithfulness. Daniel 7 also talks about this. In 13:14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven that were came, there came on, sorry, I'm just butchering this. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Uh, of course, Zechariah earlier that we talked about also talked about this. So knew, they knew there would be a future king that would come to rule, right? They expected Jesus to enact that rule from, from Daniel right at that moment. <clears throat> they expected to be delivered from Rome and the enemies of Israel be put in their place. And they knew it would be an, an everlasting kingdom. So like, yo, it's, it's happening right this moment. And a part of it was happening, but part of it is not. And of course, we know this. As, as Christians, that Jesus is coming again. And that's when Daniel 7 will be fully fulfilled. <clears throat> but they expected that then. So when Jesus, throughout the week, after this important moment, doesn't do what they expected of him, they were confused. Where is this kingdom that was promised? Why are you not sack in Rome and take like kicking it to the man you know <clears throat> and I want to pause for a minute talk about expectations anybody else here seen Star Wars episode 8 it's called The Last Jedi so when I originally wrote this sermon The Last Jedi was pretty recent on my mind and it <clears throat> I was super excited for The Last Jedi I'm a big Star Wars fan, always have been. If, any, if you know me well, I sometimes call Cindy Master Cindy or Master Sindu because she's also a huge Star Wars fan. <clears throat> so I was not super enthused by The Force Awakens. Uh, it was a fine movie, but it was basically Star Wars Episode Four, the original Star Wars, rehashed and done worse, but with better effects. And I'm like... We got to get some creativity. I'm, I'm an artist. I, I studied music at U of M. So I'm like, you got to get some creativity up in here. <clears throat> well, they did get some creativity, and I knew they would be because they got a really awesome director. At least I thought he was going to be awesome. His name is Ryan Johnson. He had done some really creative movies. Well, I sit into this movie, and I get out of it, and I'm like, what the heck just happened? This movie, they basically took my expectations, threw them on the ground, stomped on them, Rubbed it in, and then picked it up and threw it in the toilet. <clears throat> All about the first five minutes. Especially when you see bombs dropping out of ships with no gravity. And people are like, oh, it could have been magnets. No, I'm sorry, magnets don't work like that. 
gravity is not in space, they would not have fallen. So uh, first five minutes, I'm already mad at this movie, and <clears throat> it just got worse from there. For those that don't know, spoiler alert, they kill off Luke. Uh, <clears throat> and <laughs> he's dead. Yeah, but you don't say, you know, Yoda's not dead. Yoda died, but he's a force ghost. Yes. <clears throat> Anyways, they, they try to make this really artistic movie, and it falls flat on its face. Uh, I've had big discussions with some buddies who really love the movie, and I just can't understand why they like it. The reason I wanted to talk about it <clears throat> is I expected something, and I got something different, and I was mad. Uh, I've also had other moments where that happened in my life. Uh, <clears throat> you know, when I was at uh, Reach the University Institute as an intern, um, I don't, don't remember this example super, super well, but there was, there was a moment where I was expecting something to happen, and it didn't. And I was super disappointed, and I was like, why am I even here? Why? Why? Uh, why am I even waiting for this? This is, this is frustrating. I shouldn't even seek this anymore. Uh, and our national uh, leader actually came over, me, over to me and said, hey, I'm uh, specifically talking about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I had been seeking it, and I'm like, this is my moment. This is when it's happening. And it didn't, and I got disappointed. And our national leader came over to him and said, hey, I sought it for six, seven years before it happened to me. And, of course, that was encouraging to me. But I was, I was disappointed and hurt that it hadn't happened. So as a warning, you know, guard your heart, setting too much on expectation. You will get burned. <clears throat> Literally, burned. Even if the, what you don't expect happens is the best thing for you, if you expect too much, you will get burned. <clears throat> and the Jews got burned, not by Jesus, but by their own expectations, by their own selves. They got burned. So now I want to talk about, as I wrap it up here in the next few minutes, what is the kingdom? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This word kingdom is often misunderstood. Uh, in our modern English language and American mindset, we typically think of a kingdom as land or peoples um, that are ruled. <clears throat> However, typically in the Bible, uh, what is meant by kingdom is the rule, the reign of God, God extending his authority, right? <clears throat> so the kingdom of God is his rule and reign. There's a song that we like to sing called You Reign that you guys may remember, you know. With power and majesty, dominion, authority, you reign. Yeah, oh, we already sing them. We going to church. <clears throat> I love that song, and that's part of the reason why is it's talking about this, this kingdom, right? <clears throat> of course, God, as the creator and ruler of the universe, he's already ruling the world, the universe. However, due to sin, people have rejected that rule. They've rejected God and his rule over their lives. We've all done it. Don't deny it. <clears throat> and God, through history, has been basically reenacting his rule in our lives. And so there's two phrases I want to talk about as I talk about the kingdom today. Because I can't go into all of it. I don't have time. It's already 1225. I want to wrap up soon so you're not here to listen to me all day. But the first phrase is this. The kingdom is tomorrow. And what that means is God has already shown us that 
there will be a coming kingdom, a perfect kingdom in the future when Jesus returns. This is, of course, talked about in Revelation, as well as Jesus during the Gospels. He talks about it a lot. And this is the kingdom that the Jews expected. When God will make all things right, all things perfect, Satan will be kicked to the curb, right? And the new heaven and new earth will be established. Men cannot build this kingdom. Only Christ coming again will bring it. There's this word called parousia that we talk about in theology that means the second coming of Christ. That's the kingdom is tomorrow. This next phrase is this. The kingdom is today. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom by George Eldon Ladd. Uh, these two phrases I actually got from him, but I want to read a small quote from him. And he says this. The age to come is still future, but we may taste the powers of that age. Something has happened by virtue of which that which belongs to the future has become the present. The powers of the age to come have penetrated this age. The powers of the age to come... Uh, sorry, that was, I wrote the same sentence twice. Apparently I was sleepy last night writing that down. Anyways, while we still live in the present evil age, and while Satan is still the prince of this age, we may taste the powers of the coming age. Now a taste is not a seven-course banquet. We still look forward to the glorious consummation of fulfillment of that which we have only tasted, yet a taste is real. It is more than a promise. It is realization. It is experience. So what this is talking about, and this is why I wanted to talk about this today, is right now in the scriptures, Jesus is making his public claim as I'm the king, I'm the one promised. <clears throat> and of course, with, through his death and resurrection, this kingdom has been started to be enacted, started to be realized in the world. <clears throat> Even though there's the future kingdom coming, part of that kingdom is basically, like, I like to say, like bleeding into this current age, right? <clears throat> this has provided us with the reality that we can experience and know God now in a way that typically would be thought of as something as future. Of course, there's many reasons why we can do this. The Holy Spirit is living in us providing God's presence, comfort, and wisdom. There's the transformation that comes from the new birth. Of course, the whole world and, and, it, and etern- like everything will be transformed into new heaven and new earth, but we have that beginning of that transformation now in our own lives. And of course, this concept of eternal life. Eternal life we typically think of as time. However, eternal life doesn't always just mean time. Of course, that's part of it, it's time. But eternal life also means the type of life we experience by knowing God. It is not just future. It is now. It is not just limited. It is infinite in the scope of its life. And of course, this is talking about this. We have a, a, a phrase talking about this type of thing in scriptures because the kingdom is not the only thing that's already but not yet. And that's the phrase I want to talk about this, already but not yet. Paul talks about this. You know, we are already saved, but we're also going to be futurely our, our salvation will be finalized. We are already sanctified, made clean, but we're, we still sin, so we will be fully sanctified in the future. The already, but not yet. <clears throat> and as you read in our passage today, Jesus presented himself as the king of the universe. The ruler of not only the future kingdom, but also 
the current day kingdom, the ruler of our lives, especially those of us in the church. Basically, the way this rule is enacted is not over all people. God's not forcing everybody to, to kneel and, and bow to him. He is, for now, giving us uh, you know, responsibility in that. But there will be coming a day when you won't have a choice anymore. God's going to say, I'm the king, whether you like it or not. <clears throat> he is the ruler of our lives. And today I want to pose to you a question. If Jesus is our king, what does that mean for us? I'll say that again. If Jesus is our king, our Lord, what does that mean for us? I talked about this a little bit in D group. My classes will remember this. I talked about the concept of vassal. Uh, I like to think about my relationship with God as a vassal. Uh, and this is, this is not necessarily uh, something that is talked about directly in the Bible. This is just me getting my, my mind around what this looks like. Of course, it's not just this. We're also Jesus' friend, his family, uh, and beyond that. But for me, the word vassal is really important because it gets me into this idea of Jesus is my king and I'm his vassal. Now, vassal comes from the concept of feudal Europe, and a vassal is a holder of land by feudal tenure on conditions of homage and allegiance. <clears throat> Basically, a vassal was those under the king that the king gave authority over a small part of his kingdom, and <clears throat> but they were uh, loyal to him, right? So they are servants, but given authority over some small, small area. So we are vassals of the kingdom. He deserves our praise, of course. He deserves our obedience. All that we have and do belongs to him, but he has also given us authority to do the ministry he has called on us, right? And of course, there's more to that. Uh, and that's, I think, something for you to kind of spend some time thinking about. If Jesus is my king, what does that mean for me? If I am his vassal, what does that mean for me? Band, could you guys come up? So I wanted to give a time for response. Uh, it's not going to be long. It's not going to be an altar call. But just a few minutes as the band plays instrumentally just to ask this question to God. Uh, it doesn't have to be out loud. It doesn't have to be long. But just, uh, you know, in your own way, in your own voice, ask God, if you are my king, what does that mean for me? And specifically, uh, in, I think as in Matthew, during this passage, when Jesus comes to the temple, uh, the, the, the Pharisees and rulers of the synagogue challenge him, and they say, they, they say like, you know, some have said, you know, don't, you, you don't want us to pay our, our taxes to Caesar. And so Jesus is like, well, who's, whose face is on the coin, on the denarii? And they're like, well, Caesar's coin. Caesar's head, sorry. Uh, and so Jesus says, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. Another way to rephrase that is give the world back what belongs to the world. You don't need it. But give to God what belongs to God. Of course, all that we have and do belongs to him. We are dual citizens, all of us. If you are a born-again Christian, if you... Uh, have faith in Jesus, you are a dual citizen. What that means is, of course, you're an American citizen or a citizen of whatever country you're from, but you're also a citizen of the kingdom of God. And there's one citizenship that is primary, and that is not your earthly citizenship. It's your spiritual citizenship. 
So during this response time, as they're kind of playing instrumentally and then starting to sing, as you're asking this question to God, ask yourself also, what can I give God back? What can I give back to God? What do I have that I'm holding from him? What do I have that I'm using for worldly things? How can I serve my king? Okay? So let's just do that, and I'll close really quick with a prayer. I'm not going to come back up or say anything more, but just take this moment just to pose this question. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our king. We love you. We know you've done so much for us. We can't even grasp the heights of the things you've done for us. And Lord, we don't want to be those like Boromir in uh, Lord of the Rings where he doesn't fully accept and realize his king until the end of his life. We want to realize that now. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'll speak to us. Speak to us in a way that helps us just to realize what you want us to do as your vassals, as your servants, but also as your friends and your family, God, as your children. We just pray that you speak to us today. Speak to all of us. And fill us with your your wisdom and help us to know what to give back to you, God, and how to serve you. We pray all that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.